The Dance of Gods, Book One, Spell of Catastrophe, written and read by Mayor Alan Brenner. Chapter 13 Max Drops In Over the mountains they ran into a storm. Under more rational conditions they would have let it ground them. Thunder crashed on all sides, lightning lit the giant billows of heaving clouds, and downdrafts threatened to rip the birds' wings off and smash them all into the ground. Otto's skill and the buzzard's native cussedness drove them on. Max wanted to hoard as much of his strength as he could, and influencing even calm weather was a major energy sinkhole. The sky was merely overcast when they reached the river. The bird turned south, the scattered lights of sailing vessels making cryptic beacons below them in the night. Ten miles north of Rusingle Via, they went into a long glide. The city was only a mile or two downstream when the bird leveled out twenty feet over the large swells. Max adjusted his face mask, checked the pack straps, and slid into the river. Otto and the bird banked east and faded out of sight in the darkness. Max turned on his back. The current floated him downstream. Rusingle Via approached. With a little luck, he'd be in and out quickly, Max thought. His arms still hurt. He'd made liberal use of some healing gunk or another Carlini had had sitting around, or he wouldn't have been able to move it at all. Not that partial incapacitation surprised him. It was the typical kind of problem for a mess like this. A broad eddy swept him closer to the west bank. The main moon was just rising, low in the east and mostly waned away, and behind the clouds to boot. The walls blocked the light from the city. Max picked out his secondary landmarks as faint silhouettes, sighted on the North Point Lighthouse, and struck out for the northeast corner tower. Cross-currents and whirlpools caught him as he neared the wall. He had expected them, too, and had made allowances for an irregular passage. A final riptide dragged him into the lee south of the tower. Max put out a hand and rested it against the piling supporting a rotting wharf, taking a moment's rest. The suit of treated hides Carlini had dug out of a storeroom was supposedly waterproof. A trickle was running in down the back of Max's neck, though, and several other leaks were accumulating water in the attached booties, just enough to be thoroughly annoying. Max, scratched between his shoulder blades, glowered at the suit, and then started measuring his way to the left along the bulge of the city. He soon came to the end of the old wharf, saw a twenty-foot gap before the next, sighted up at a spire rising beyond the wall, and nodded with gloomy satisfaction. Max felt out with his hand. Three feet from the wharf, the stone of the wall ended in an arch. Water smacked against the stone lip and against the iron grating spanning the outlet. Max took a deep breath, put his head down, and dived. The grating was solid in the rock. The center section, however, was hinged, and the lock had not surprisingly rusted out. Max secured the gate behind him with a twist of rope. As he'd expected, the magical barrier around the city was short-circuited by the flowing water. He'd felt nothing more than a sensation like a fine-toothed comb being dragged backward through his aura. The culvert proceeded under the wall before turning up, but the ceiling height was more than adequate to allow walking. He slogged inward. 
The real reason he had bothered with the water-repellent suit was that it also repelled whatever was in the water. Max was notoriously fastidious, and sewers, after all, were sewers. He kept the bone-and-hide face mask firmly planted over his nose, breathing as infrequently as possible. At an intersection, he stopped to verify his bearings. Stretching away from him toward the west, he could see a round tunnel awash to mid-thigh level, its lower roof broken by periodic shafts leading up to gratings in the street. Other feeder tubes entered high up on the side surfaces, some spilling runnels of dark fluid. Dim light came down some of the vertical shafts and made strange glittering patterns on the moving water. Max sloshed forward, passing one major turnoff, then another. A clatter ahead caught his attention. The illumination down one shaft abruptly intensified as the manhole cover above was lifted. Twisted and elongated shadows writhed on the wall, Max heard a cry begin and be abruptly stifled, and then one of the shadows separated from the other and came sweeping down. A figure dropped from the shaft into the water. The slow current pushed the man past Max, his throat cut. Max crouched and entered a tunnel to the side. He threaded his way through the maze. It was difficult to appear completely transparent to sorcerous search because of the radiative characteristics of auras. To make an aura totally disappear was nearly impossible. Making an aura look like it belonged to somebody else, on the other hand, was much less complex and generally more successful, camouflage being a basic principle of nature. So it was that Max appeared to even a probing search as a large and fairly bedraggled muskrat. The disguise was helpful in more ways than one. Some large species lived in the river, but they tended to find the taste of muskrat unappealing. Eventually, the tunnel Max was following ended at a massive stone block. Max stopped to consider. By his calculations, the large block was part of the foundation for the north wall, the house of Oskinyale should be a few hundred feet west, south of the wall, or perhaps immediately next to it. The neighborhood had been outside the original city. During the reconstruction from a large flood a century or so earlier, in the same spurt of civic zeal that had seen the sewer system established, the wall had been extended north to encompass what was then a thriving district built on a series of low hills. Also encompassed were a number of Rusing Ulvaya's original cemeteries. With the periodic floods, putting graves above the water level had looked like a good idea. As far as public health went, that plan had worked out fine. Floodwaters left the bodies alone. On the other hand, floods weren't the only things that were interested in them. The first thing a necromancer did when moving into a new domain was chart the locations of all the local graves, Corpses, after all, were the necromancer's basic stock-in-trade and source of raw material. A necromancer's dream house was next to his or her own private reserve. This was what Oskin Yali had managed. Max had serious questions about certain parts of the situation, but about one thing there were no doubts. Oskin Yali had the potential to be very dangerous. Max decided to remain with the underground route for the time being. He backtracked to the nearest intersection and went right. The culvert tilted gently up, the current grew faster and gained bite in its force. 
Max leaned into it. The incline meant he was ascending the underside of a hill. Passing beneath another vertical shaft, he heard the rattle of a small group of men on patrol passing overhead. The clinking faded off into the night. Another opening approached on his right, and Max approached it cautiously. The water swirled at the intersection, making a small foaming whirlpool with dim blue highlights. Down the side passage, the blue glow was stronger. Max peeked around the arch. Beyond the junction, the secondary passage widened, increasing in height and continuing slightly uphill. Thirty feet ahead and five feet over the water level, he saw a boat landing recessed into the wall, the blue glow emanating from somewhere at its back. Humanoid shapes moved on the landing, their shadows dancing madly on the water. There were two, no, three of them, virtually reeking of necromantic conjuration, the anticipated zombies, no doubt. Max smiled a not-particularly-pleasant smile. He reached over his shoulder and removed the top item from his pack. Submerging himself to the neck in the water, he unwrapped the article he had selected, revealing two lead balls connected by five feet of thick cord. A second item fell free into his hand, a hollow reed about a foot long and two inches in diameter. Max glanced around the corner again and checked the clearances. With a little luck it would work, and he wouldn't even need his injured arm. Max moaned loudly across the end of the reed. The mournful drone resonated down the passage, hanging in the air with an echoing wail. He waited a minute, then moaned again. This time, Max was rewarded with a chorus of splashes from the direction of the landing. Footsteps sloshed in the tunnel. The creatures were coming, Max thought, and why not? After all, what self-respecting undead could resist the famous zombie love call? Max said a final word to the cord. It, too, began to glow. Then he popped the end of the reed in his mouth, sank down, and watched the shaft, the top of his faceplate barely out of the water, bracing himself against the current. Another splash sounded, very close now. The blue glow strengthened, a twisted shadow fell upon the water and the far wall, and then a hand appeared around the corner. A web of faint sparks knit the greenish tissue together around its gaps and tears, tendons sliding in plain sight over the stark white bones. Clutched in its grip was a tarnished brass handle. Suspended from the handle was a globular mass of writhing blue coils, a zombie glowworm, for all Max knew. The rest of the body attached to the hands shambled wetly into sight. Internal organs shifted restlessly within the zombie's chest cavity, a trail of intestine leading back around one leg and up the tunnel. It looked around, searching eagerly for the source of the call. A second zombie elbowed its way into view, followed by a third, the smell was mounting well above the normal odor of the sewer, penetrating to Max's nose even within the face mask. He raised his hand, twirled the weighted cord twice around his head, and let it go. The cord spun around the torso of the first zombie, snapping through the rotten humerus in its right upper arm and flinging it off-balance to its rear. Sparks of white crackling along its length, the cord continued to spin, chewing its way through bone and flesh alike. One iron ball smashed with the second zombie's ribs as the first creature slammed into it. The cord snapped tight, the momentum grinding the two together. One torso suddenly imploded under the pressure, and bits of tissue splattered against the walls. The third zombie tottered and fell as its feet were swept out from under it. 
With a paroxysm of splashing, the tangled, massive zombie floated quickly around Max and headed downstream. The current had taken the lamp, too. It bobbed behind them, spun in an eddy, dwindled, and went out of sight around a corner. Max allowed himself a quick smirk, then went around the arch into the side passage. He climbed a short ladder to the landing. The landing was little more than an alcove in the side of the sewer tunnel. Max stowed his face mask in the pack as he glanced around. The area was now almost totally dark, the only break in the blackness being provided by a wriggling blue wormlet that had snagged on the sharp edge of a rock. A small rowboat was pulled up into one corner of the alcove and secured with a cable through an eye-bolt in the prow. Another ladder led up to a trapdoor in the landing's roof. Max examined the ladder carefully, then gingerly climbed it, pausing at the top to ease open the trapdoor just enough to peek in over the edge. The trapdoor occupied the corner of a cellar, otherwise filled with crates. The yellow-red light of candles showed in the jam of a door in the wall above. Nothing was moving. Max pulled himself through the door onto the cellar floor, eased the trap down, felt his way to the stairs, and paused, one foot poised over the first riser. Something felt strange about the stairs. Max lowered his foot back to the floor. Bracing himself with one hand against the rock-and-dirt wall, he closed his eyes, stretched gently out with his other arm, and made a flowing gesture with his hand. He concentrated, and the orientation of his senses precessed slightly out of their normal alignment. Max opened his eyes. A swimming haze surrounded him, small oval paddles like disembodied hummingbird wings spinning through it. He focused past his aura, up onto the staircase. A nebulous pink haze hung over the steps. It faded as he watched, still churning silently. So much for the stairs. Max didn't know exactly what the thing was, but that was fine with him. He wasn't interested in research at the moment. It was Max's firm philosophy to avoid the frontal assault wherever possible. To his great regret, it wasn't always possible. In this case, though, there were other options. Max spotted a thick bearing beam holding up the ceiling in front of the door at the top of the staircase. Climbing over a crate, he reached a spot below the beam and raised his left arm. His sleeve fell back, revealing the wrist appliance he had last used back in the bar at the desert oasis. The spring-loaded mechanism in which Max usually kept a knife was good for other things as well. He removed the knife and inserted a dart. He studied the appliance with his other hand and released the catch. Springs pinged, the dart lanced up, trailing a thin cord, and with a low chunk, the dart embedded itself in the beam. Max leaned on the cord. The hold was solid. He went up hand over hand, fending off from the wall with his feet and grimacing from the load on his bad arm, taking care not to touch the staircase. Max quickly drew abreast of the door, dangling below the ceiling and at the outside of the landing at the top of the stairs. He put his eye to the crack at the door jamb. The stairs continued upward beyond the door, ending flush with the floor of the next story in a closet that looked like a pantry. That door was standing open, admitting light from another room. Max's door, unfortunately, was locked. He reached inside his suit and slid out a set of lockpicks. Max took a firm grip on the cord, taking the dead weight off his left forearm, lowered himself to the level of the lock, and inserted one of the picks. 
Ten seconds later, the lock clicked. Max pulled the door open, swung himself over the banister and through the doorframe, and steadied himself with a foot up on the handrail and his free arm over the lip at the edge of the floor at the level of the top of his head. The current section of staircase looked fine, but he wasn't quite ready to trust it more than the other. As he had spied through the crack, the stairs went steeply upward to an open door leading onto a plain whitewashed hall. The well for the stairs would ordinarily be covered by a wooden slab. This cover was currently raised on its hinged back and secured overhead. Stacks of dry goods in sacks and boxes covered the rest of the closet floor and were heaped against the walls around the open stairwell. There was no one in sight. Max pulled himself up to the door sill at the floor level and took a quick glance around the door into the hall. It was still empty. Crouching, he let go of the climbing cord, reinserted his knife into the wrist appliance, turned the recessed crank that wound the springs, spent a quick moment stretching out his injured arm, which had held up remarkably under the exertion, and eased out into the hall, closing the door behind him. Across the hall he could see the entranceway to a darkened kitchen and a thick candle in a wooded holder next to it on the wall. To the right of the kitchen, the back hall intersected another hall, this one much fancier, leading away toward the front of the building. Max slid across to the kitchen, blew out the candle, then leaned sideways to see around the corner into the front hall. The front hall was cluttered with gilt mirrors and footed end tables. Max's end of the hall was now in deep shadow, but the light was much better toward the front, where the left side of the hall opened onto a large space lit by the glow of many candles. The hall's ceiling also opened, becoming a series of free arches casting strange patterns under the flickering light. A set of double doors broke the wall on the right. At the end of the hall was a small enclosed entryway leading out to the front door. Unfortunately, these were not the only features. Two men-at-arms were visible in the corridor where it faced the larger open room, one positioned at each side of the double doors. A third was planted next to the half-closed door to the entry, and the shapes of two more were visible at either side of the door to the street. They each bore a strange device of purple bands with a column of coiling flames ascending from it. So, Askinale had his own private militia. That was a detail Carlini had neglected to mention. Max glided silently back out of sight. A climbing staircase beckoned across from him down the continuation of the back hall. The problem was that the man at the entry door was looking straight back along the cross corridor. If Max tried to sneak across, even in the deep shadows at the rear, the guy would clearly spot him. Max had an advantage in that no one knew he was around. If he tried to direct the man's eyes away or use some other distraction, he might make it to the staircase, but he'd have a bigger chance of alerting another element of Oskin Yale's forces. Or a trap. A staircase wasn't worth that much. He decided to check out the kitchen. The kitchen was located in a rear corner of the building. The adjoining walls featured a small ventilation window. Max hoisted himself atop an upturned wash tub and looked out. In the dim light outside, he made out a modest field with perhaps a hint of the city wall at its back. Directly outside the window was a skeletal tree. He closed his eyes and felt quickly around. The window didn't seem trapped, but Max didn't like the feel of the tree, or of the grounds for that matter. 
The window was constructed around wooden cross pieces set in an elliptical frame and hinged to swing outward. When Max, when Max tentatively tried to ease it open, though, the window stuck. A convenient canister of kitchen grease later, it moved silently open, the barest start of a shriek yielding to another globet on the hinge. Max stuck his head out through the open frame. Another roundish window on the second story was a few feet to one side. By standing on the sill, he could almost reach its frame. He crouched, then sprang, grabbed the lower jamb of the second-story window, and chimmed himself on it. Inside the window was a bedroom, dark and quiet. The window opened at his touch. He lowered himself silently to the floor. Max tiptoed toward the door. Behind the screen, concealed from the window, was a bed, containing a sleeping girl apparently covered only by a small rug and a flimsy burnoose. He paused and raised an eyebrow, wondering briefly at the tastes of gods. There were certain things in the story of Oskin Yale, the mobile castle and its kidnapped occupant, Carlini and Rusingalvaya that made less than total sense when accepted at face value. Max was especially suspicious about the role of Oskin Yale, Hopefully, though, Max thought, moving to the door, the moment of resolution is approaching. The corridor beyond the door was bare. The corridor ran directly over the back hall Max had scouted downstairs and in the same direction. Where the cross corridor on the first floor had led to the front of the house, though, there was nothing here on the second floor but a blank wall. On the other side of the blank wall, Max assumed, was the second-story extension of the large open room off the front hallway on the ground level. The architecture was unusual for a house. Max had already taken into account the cemetery on the lot to conclude that the place was probably a converted temple, with the big room on the first story being the worship space proper. One thing he was still wondering about was what god the temple had originally been dedicated to. Across the hall from the bedroom, he saw another door standing ajar. The room behind it was empty. Max crossed and entered. On the wall to the left of the door were three large open windows overlooking the expanse of the sanctuary. A tightly wound circular staircase in the back left corner led down to the ground floor, probably to the room that had been on the other side of the double doors flanked by guards. Empty bookcases lined the remaining walls. A blackboard on a tripod stand, recently erased, leaned against the bookcase behind the stairs. A large desk with a matching armchair and the carved lectern next to it dominated the center of the room. The desk bore a stack of cryptic papers, a scattering of glassware, candles and chalk, and a set of unlabeled canisters with tightly sealed lids. This was apparently Oskinyale's workroom. He would have to show up here sooner or later. Why a god needed a workroom was another question that was fueling Max's pet suspicion. He crept to the top of the circular staircase and paused. Voices were audible from the room below, but their meaning was lost. Rising, Max crossed to the nearest window for the view of the temple interior. Scattered candles and a few torches smoldered below. Whatever altars, tapestries, fonts, or other furnishings had originally filled the chamber were long gone leaving only bare walls and long trails of soot. In the typically dim light, Max could make out a half-dozen of the men with the purple badges, and another group of perhaps eight or ten clustered to themselves near one wall, regular guard troops, most likely. 
The guard soldiers were watching a small number of prisoners. The lighting made it difficult to tell exactly what was going on. No one was being given the level of attention and respect that Oskin Yale would command, so if he was in the building, he was probably in the room just below. Max stepped back from the window and eyed the workroom. The only hiding place that would be concealed from both the floor and the staircase was behind the desk, so Max moved around the desk and lowered himself to the floor. The voices downstairs were still engaged in conversation. Max rummaged inside his backpack, pulled out a flat rectangular case, and snapped it open. Inside was a blowgun and several darts with finned ends. Their needle points glistened with a sticky dark brown substance. A scratch would cause immediate stupor, lasting hours in most any living things smaller than Hato's buzzard. A larger dose, two darts worth, say, would not only turn down the conscious mind but the vegetative as well, thereby arresting the victim's breathing. Fitting the tubular halves of the blowgun together, Max slid a dart inside and placed the weapon next to him on the floor. For good measure, Max also loosened the stiletto in its leather sheath strapped to the outside of his boot, and then set to work with his other preparations. Max didn't know exactly what he was going to need to do. That is, he knew what he had to do, deal with the ring, the ring that was holding the owner of Carlini's castle a prisoner, the ring that Oskin Yale no doubt was wearing. He just didn't know exactly what he'd have to go through to accomplish that. To deal with the ring, he'd presumably have to deal first with Oskin Yale. He wasn't sure how much dealing with Oskin Yale would take, but Max figured he'd better be prepared. From all accounts, the ring had been designed to trap and encapsulate the owner of the castle, allowing the ring's wearer to utilize the power of the being penned up in it. It was this occupant that Max would have to release. Any magician in his right mind would only take on a task like that when the conditions would allow patience and fine control. There were a lot of nasty things that could go wrong. For one thing, recorporating a disembodied entity was a major job usually done in several stages. When the entity was presumed to be a death, and when one could reliably assume he would emerge in a state of no little annoyance, that only made things worse. Max didn't have the luxury of choosing his time and place, but he'd prepared as well as he could. He and Carlini had designed a set of nested confinement spells that Max had brought with him. The plan was to incapacitate Oskin Yale by sneak attack or subterfuge if possible, then encase him in the big confinement field with the ring still on his finger. The ring itself would be wrapped in the other restriction spells within the larger cage matrix. Max was hoping that would give him enough protection to probe the nature of the ring's defenses while containing anything that started to leak out. The probes that would enable us were ready, too. The whole sequence was linked and programmed, in fact. The confinement layers would crystallize simultaneously in a self-supporting array automatically activating the probes in quick graduated sequence. A battery of quiescent somnolence thrall routines firing with the probes would hopefully calm the ring's occupant to a decent level of sedation. If he had to, Max would try to release the ring's prisoner at that point, when the results of the probes were in, but he was hoping that wouldn't be necessary. With a little luck, he'd have stabilized the ring enough to get it off Oskin Yale and take it away with him without setting things loose. Max rested his rapier on the floor within easy reach. 
he'd begun to think that swords were too convenient a solution for many problems, and one that lacked finesse, but they certainly did have their uses. No regular sword would bother Oskin Yali, of course, but with the number of soldiers around, it still might come in handy. It could be a serious enough business that Max wanted all the backup he could get. Even with all the preparations, his luck at penetrating the city and Oskin Yali's headquarters without discovery and without serious opposition, and his ability to react well and think on his feet, Max was still hoping he'd make it through the experience alive and in one piece. It wasn't a question of whether something would go wrong. Of course something would go wrong. Something always went wrong. The only question was how much of a mess it would be. Boots tramped and armor clattered from the room below. A heavy tread started up the circular staircase. Another lighter set of footsteps followed it, uncertain steps falling one, two, one, two, three, as though the walker wasn't quite sure what he was doing. The voice of a man began to separate itself out from the muffling walls. Above this ring? Max put the blowgun to his lips and sank down behind the desk, peeking out from the side around the chair. A man's hand appeared on the banister, the middle finger wearing a gold ring, then behind the hand, a head. A black eye patch covered the left eye, and the black aura of the ring covered the flesh. Askin Yale, the man who might be death, came up through the floor. Next, Chapter 14, Mont Solos.